Gideon, the nervous world changer. Lord, we, I do ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and take these words and use them for your glory today. Amen. Our story today starts 200 years after the death of Joshua. The Israelites were settled in the Promised Land. Some of the original people were still living in parts of it. And the Israelites had started to intermarry with the people groups and added the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth to the worship of Yahweh. Uh, there's a couple of pictures of how Baal was um, presented, either as a, an ox or a, uh, a bull or a man with a bull's horns. And, uh, you see a picture there of a guy worshipping in front of uh, altar to Baal and these pagan gods were thought to control the weather and thus the crops and production of the farms and ultimately all fertility so they were the gods of fertility and were very important if you believe in them uh, there was various names for them amongst the different groups of people but they all had similar sort of attributes and, and they were worshipped so there'd be good crops and the animals would be abundant and, and uh, would reproduce abundantly. And uh, I imagine when things were not going as abundantly as they would like, the Israelites were tempted to appeal for help to these guys as well as that they could see, the gods they could see, as well as to the Yahweh who they couldn't see. In total, there were more than 234 deities that are recorded in the Ugaritic text. Okay, these technical things always seem to happen to me. <laughs> I remember last time. Well, we'll just have to do without the pictures, which is sad because I put the pictures into the kids today uh, so they could see uh, some of the Anyway, the Ugaritic texts were some ancient uh, bits of stone with writing on them that were found in 1928 and date from the 13th and 12th century BC. They uh, were quite extensive and told lots of stories and described the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth in great detail, which is how we know a lot about what uh, they did and how they thought of their gods in those days. But uh, one of the gods was called El, and he was viewed as an elder or a greybeard, the supreme deity. He was the creator god, the father of the gods and humans, and the god of wisdom. And you might have heard the term El Shaddai as a name for God. And that's a word from the Bible back in Genesis. God told Abraham his name was El Shaddai because he was the supreme God. And that means God Almighty. So that people had taken things that God had given them and mixed them into their worship from these other gods as well. So they had a god called El, 
who was sometimes uh, Ashtaroth was seen as his wife. Uh, and they had sort of mixed the whole thing in together. And as we read the Old Testament, it appears that the Israelites were always in trouble with God for worshipping these other gods. Worshipping statues seems strange to me. I mean, it's not something we do now. But when I think about it, it seems that they fell into the trap of adding other gods to their dependence on Yahweh, the God that they couldn't see. Looks like I'm getting a little bit of action over there. Uh, today, we don't have idols of stone or silver or gold, but we can sometimes depend on our wealth or our technology to achieve what we want, or even what we think God wants. So, back to 1100 BC, and we meet the Midianites and the Amalekites. The Midianites and the Malachites, who I'm sure you've heard of in the Bible stories, were both lots that were descended from Abraham through different sons and were nomadic people who lived in the deserts to the south of Israel. And at the time of our story, they had become strong and numerous and they were oppressing the Israelites. For seven years, they oppressed the Israelites. So we can have our next picture, number four. Yep. They uh, got to the point where they bring raiding parties in and steal all the food and if there was crops growing, they'd burn them, they'd destroy everything, they'd destroy all the animals. They were invading and they would bring, uh, the Bible says, they camped on the land and ruined the crops and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And so they, and eventually, after seven years, Israel began to cry out to God for help. As I'm sure most of you have heard of Gideon, a man who was threshing wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I always used to wonder how you could thresh wheat in a wine press. I thought it was a very strange concept. But I've got a couple of pictures here of uh, ancient wine presses. So they sort of get a rocky hillside and make it quite a deep impression where they'd put all the grapes in and then they'd have a hole bored through further down into another impression where the juice would go through into, through a filter into the next section and then probably into another section as well where they allowed it to ferment. But um, So in that first big impression, depression or, or uh, <coughs> area, Gideon was there threshing wheat. Now that's a very tricky thing to do because when you're threshing wheat, you've got to throw, they throw it up in the air for the wind to blow away the chaff, which isn't going to happen very well when you're down in a wine press. But 
It's also a smart thing to do if there's raiding parties who are going to take away every bit of food that you've got if they possibly catch you with it. So Gideon wasn't... Oh, I, I always heard the story as Gideon was fearful, but I think he was pretty smart, actually, <laughs> keeping out of their, their way. But uh, yeah, and Gideon also, he wasn't all that young. A bit later in the story we hear that he had a son who was part of the army and he also had numerous wives and eventually had 70 sons as well as presumably numerous daughters. So um, he was uh, an established man, let's put it that way. <laughs> anyway, Gideon's working away there, threshing the wheat and a man approaches him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's scratching his head. Mighty warrior, who's he talking to? Uh, Gideon says, pardon me, sir, but the Lord is with us. Well, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. Gideon asked a question that some may be asking today. Where is God in this messed up world? We look at the evil and suffering around the world and ask, is this how the world's supposed to be? What's gone wrong? What's God doing about it? And if this is a question you have today, may I suggest you start by finding out who God is and if he can be trusted, even if we don't have all the answers. But the man talks to Gideon and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? What was the message to Gideon? Go. Change things then. God is sending you. What? How? How am I supposed to do that? Me? You've got to be kidding. But he's very polite. He says, pardon me, sir. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. So what was special about Gideon? As far as other people were concerned, he, he was no one special. However, God looked at the heart. And he could see that Gideon had an open heart. A heart that was looking for answers. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Wow! Gideon must have figured there was something special about this guy. Perhaps he was a prophet. He'd heard about a prophet who had been around recently claiming that they weren't listening to Yahweh. God told them not to worship the gods of the people around them, but they hadn't listened. If this guy was a prophet, then they'd better treat him with some respect, bring him a gift, give him some hospitality. So Gideon says, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really God speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. So the man agrees and settles himself under a big shady tree to wait. And it goes on and says, Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat and with a basket of flour he baked some bread without yeast 
In carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the man who was under the great tree. Now I suspect that the wives and servants actually did the work, but Gideon gets the, gets the credit anyway. And the angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. We have the next picture. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff of his hand and fire flamed up from the rock, consumed all that he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. At this point, it dawns on Gideon that he's had a visit from an angel and he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And from this point on in the story, it seems that Jehovah started speaking directly to Gideon. Because the angel's gone, but we hear about God keeping on speaking, giving him reassurance and giving him directions for how to proceed. It's all right, the Lord replied, do not be afraid, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. So the first task Gideon is given is to pull down the altar to Baal and its accompanying Asherah bowl. And then he is to build an altar to the Lord and make a burnt offering of it. So Gideon, being the mighty warrior that he is, took ten servants and did it at night so that no one would know. Although uh, I guess he figured it would not be a popular move. Of course it doesn't take long for everyone in the town to find out who's done it. Who did this terrible thing? How could they do this? It's sure to bring the anger of the gods down on us. We got, yeah, there we go. And uh, they want to kill Gideon. Bring him out, we're going to kill him. And Gideon's father presents them with a novel reason not to attack his son. He says, if Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. So nothing happened. <laughs> A similar story is told that happened during a great move of God in the South Seas in the 19th century. One tribal chief was converted to Christianity and he gathered up all the idols of his people. He told the idols he was going to destroy them and he gave them a chance to run away. <laughs> then he destroyed all the ones that sat there like dumb statues. <laughs> Gideon had passed the first assignment and things worked out okay, although it looked a bit dicey for a while. And yet Gideon asked for further confirmation as his task grows. Tearing down his father's altar is one thing, opposing the mighty forces of Midians and Tamalek and their armies is another altogether. You see, Gideon is a lot like us. He has moments of incredible faith sandwiched between moments of doubt and fear. <laughs> I'm sure he must have been thinking about the message that the angel had given him regarding saving Israel from the Midianites. He knows the message has been given and he's thinking, 
how am I going to do this? What am I supposed to do? What's going to happen? A bit later, the enemy tribes form an alliance and cross over into Israelite territory with a huge army. The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. They're all Israelite tribes and then neighbouring tribes to where Gideon was. Suddenly Gideon realises what he's done and gets a bit nervous. Like what happens to some of us when we agree to step out in faith and then, ooh, what have I done? <laughs> he asks God for a miracle, for a sign. Puts a sheepskin out on the ground and says to God, in the morning, when there's all dew on the ground, that the sheep's going to be dry, and I'll know that's a sign from you that this is what you want me to do. So it happens. So he uh, tries again. He says, Okay, tonight I'll put the sheepskin on the ground and let it be dry all around, and the sheep's going to be wet. If you've ever put something out on the lawn at night, you know that's not the way it goes. <laughs> But it's that God does it for him. So I think at this point he'd run out of stalling tactics. And he's got this army assembled, so he decides to go for it. So he led his army of 32,000 off toward where the 135,000 strong army is encamped. And they've Far outnumbered. They were far outnumbered, but God had promised victory, so they started out. God t- could do a miracle, couldn't he? Couldn't he? Ooh. And Gideon's faith is stretched a bit further. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home. Just left 10,000. Wow. Have you ever been in this kind of situation where things are tough, you're trusting God to get you through, and things get worse? That was Gideon. How could even God defeat this huge army with 10,000 men? And God tells Gideon, he still has too many. He says, there's still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cut water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home and kept the 300 with him. 
Gideon was no one special. He wasn't the kind of person who jumps out of the boat. He wasn't a Peter. Gideon needed lots of reassurance before he was willing to act. And we're all different. Some people are Peters and they're bold and they're out there and they just jump out of the boat. Some people are like me and they need lots and lots of reassurance before they're willing to take those steps. But God can use anyone who has a heart to follow him, who's willing to listen and is ultimately obedient. God is very patient with Gideon. He even gives him another opportunity for encouragement. Gideon and his 300 are up on the top of the hill. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp for I've given you victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you'll be eager to attack. So they go down to the camp and sneak up to a tent, just in time to hear one of the enemy telling his mate about a dream he's just had. I had this dream, and in my dream a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp, and it hit a tent, turned it over and knocked it flat. His companion answered, Your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Wow, that must have been really encouraging for him. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up! The Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the three men, 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn, a clay jar with a torch in it, and he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too around the entire camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So that's what they did. He sent them out and on Gideon's signal, they smashed their jars, which would have made a great noise. And also... It allowed their, their lighted uh, flaming lamps to be uh, exposed. And then they blew their tram, ram's horn trumpets whoa, and shouted for the Lord and for Gideon. Startled out of their sleep, the enemy soldiers started running around in fear and confusion, killing each other and trying to get away. And at this point, Gideon sent for reinforcements they chased their enemies for several days. They kept on after them, making sure they went a long way away. Once the victory was established, the people made Gideon their ruler, and there was peace and security in Israel for 40 years. So what do we learn from the story of Gideon? Why did God choose Gideon? God can take an ordinary person and use them to make a difference in this messed up world. They don't have to be particularly clever or bold or good, but they do have to have an open heart. I read uh, this little story to, um, yesterday. 
Gabriel Carey is an Australian author most widely known for the movie Puberty Blues, based on the book of the same title. In a later book, called In My Father's House, Carey relates an incident that led to her conversion to Christ. Carey was raised an atheist in an atheist human, humanist household. Their father was a university lecturer with a passionate commitment to the left side of politics. Throughout her upbringing, he railed against oppression, capitalism, and was a key figure in the anti-war movement during the Vietnam years. He also railed against God and the church, finding it impossible to believe in a God when the world was full of so much suffering. But that left Gabrielle tremendously burdened. In her book, In My Father's House, she writes, one of the hardest aspects of growing up as the daughter of a humanist was the worry of having to live up to incredibly high intellectual and moral standards. And worse, what happened when it was discovered that you hadn't? Would you be given a second chance? Could you confess your weaknesses? Would you ever be forgiven? What would my father say if he found out that I was just another brainless, mind-moulded, media-manipulated failure to humanity? It was this burden of guilt Gabrielle found lifted when she converted to, Christ to Christian faith. Perhaps what I like most about Christianity, she writes, was knowing I could be wrong, knowing I could behave badly and I would still be loved. That all I needed to do was to own up and I'd be forgiven. At least this was the kind of God and Father you could fail without feeling that it was the end of all hope. And that was such a relief. When you have that kind of Father, it's easier to listen with open ears. Easier to trust him and have a go. So the first thing we have to do to make a difference in this messed up world is have an open heart. The second thing is to be willing to listen. <coughs> Gideon had to listen to what God told him. If he just heard, you'll lead your people to victory over your enemies and then stop listening, he would have led them to certain defeat. See, following Jesus is not just about following a set of rules. I read this in this little book called Where is God in a Messed Up World? There are those who cynically say that Christianity is merely a psychological prop. Christianity is more than a crutch to lean on. Rather, it's a vibrant relationship with God himself and one that prepares and takes a person through each season of life. God may be called upon at any moment, but those who know him in the stable times of life are the ones who are ready for the storms of life. Todd Beamer, who was on United Airlines Flight 93 bound for San Francisco on the 11th of September 2001, had such a relationship with God. When the plane was hijacked, he was the one who spoke those unforgettable words, let's roll, as they said about taking on the hijackers. 
Shortly afterwards, the plane crashed in a remote area of Pennsylvania. In his wife's account of losing her husband in a terrorist attack, she shares how she found on their computer her husband's description of his relationship with God. I've had stops and starts in building my relationship with God. I screw up, I let him down. I do not always spend time with God the way I should. This is because I'm trying to force the relationship and steer it in the direction I want to go. That doesn't work and only leads to frustration. However, each time I come to God to ask for forgiveness, he is there for me. Each time I ask God for help, he is there for me. Each time I grow out in frustration and pain, he is there for me. While my relationship with God is far from perfect, God has been there for me time and again and has expressed his love and grace for me. Although at times I've taken God for granted, my experience has been that God is patient and waiting for us to come to him. Once we come to him and give more of our lives to him, he will give more of himself to us. The third thing we have to do is be willing to obey. <coughs> Sometimes that's easier than others. Sometimes it's a bit scary. You say, I can't, it's too hard. Your Heavenly Father says, I'll be with you. I'll give you strength. God told Gideon to go in the strength you have. He started off with what he could do and then the Holy Spirit gave him strength and guidance. Gideon wasn't perfect. He was nervous, but he had a, a go. And God used him to make a difference in his messed up world. Wherever you are today, God is wanting to make a difference in our messed up world. And he gives his people the privilege of working on it with him. Our part is to be open to him, willing to listen and willing to have a go. Father, help us today to be open, to be willing to listen and willing to have a go, to work with you in making a difference in this messed up world. Amen.